everybody. It is Monday, November 6th. You're listening to the Mo News Podcast. I'm Moshe Winunu. And I'm Jill Wagner. This is the place where we bring you just the facts. And we read all the news and read between the lines so you don't have to. Jill, it was marathon weekend in New York. My favorite weekend as a marathon runner myself. You did it, what, a couple times, right? I did it three times, and it feels like another lifetime ago. I mean, I'm, I literally can't run more than two miles at this point. But it is nice to know that at one point in my life, I was able to run 26.2. We, uh, well, three times. So what is that? Carry the two, 52. <laughs> <laughs> you ran at least 79 miles in between those three marathons. Jill, we were uh, headed out and we uh, went to cheer the runners on for a bit as they came through Brooklyn. I think we were around mile eight or mile nine. It's a great spot. For those of you unfamiliar, it goes through all five boroughs, Staten Island, Brooklyn, into Manhattan. Uh, you know, you hit Queens, you hit the Bronx, and then you finish in Central Park. But it's just, it was amazing to see the runners out there, the the camaraderie. It was a very cool experience, and the weather was amazing. There is nothing like it. Not only does the crowd lift you up, so you just feel this energy from the crowd, but you also feel it from other runners. It is not uncommon mm. if you're kind of like sluggish or whatever for somebody who's running next to you who does not know you <laughs> to just be like, you got this, come on. So there's just... Mm. It restores your faith in humanity a bit. And I, I think especially at a time when we could all use that. Jill, I understand you had a different type of marathon this weekend. <laughs> I did. I I went to go see the Taylor Swift movie, which is a marathon mm. in and of itself. Completely different experience. It is about three hours and change, I believe. But I did not experience the full movie because I was with a lot of young girls who, after a couple of hours, just they loved it. It just was a lot. And they were like, can we go to Starbucks? <laughs> so we did that. <laughs> because it's it's the full concert, right? It's the full concert in movie form. So at some point you're like, okay, we've hit some of our favorite songs and we're good now, right? You watch though in absolute awe and amazement at, at the talent and also how many hits and how many songs she has written and it, that she is performing. It's incredible. And for $1,000 less than actually going to her <laughs> yes. concert. Yes. So. <laughs> I did not feel bad about loading up on candy as expensive as it is just because I was like, I'm saving a thousand dollars here. All right. Shall we get to some news, Mosh? Let's do it. Let's start with politics. The latest polls show that Donald Trump is ahead of Joe Biden in five key swing states. And now some prominent Democrats say that Biden might want to rethink running for reelection. And then to the latest in the Middle East, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken met separately with the leaders of Israel and the Palestinian Authority. And what happened when Israel tried to set up a humanitarian corridor to get food and medicine to Palestinians in Gaza? Plus, pro-Palestinian protests took hold around the world over the weekend. In New York, Donald Trump set to take the stand at his civil fraud trial. Yeah, we'll be watching that live today. On to the war in Ukraine, U.S. and European officials reportedly broached the topic of peace negotiations. An important food recall, Tyson recalling 30,000 pounds of chicken nuggets. We'll tell you which ones and why. And welcome to Miami. Amazon's Jeff Bezos leaving Seattle for the Sunshine State. Jill, he says he wants to be closer to his parents and it has nothing to do with saving billions in taxes. <laughs> we'll explain. And finally, who won this weekend's New York City Marathon? And Moshe is on this day in history. 
a little Abraham Lincoln, a little Jack Bauer, number 24. And if it's Sunday, this show premiered. All right, we are one year out from the U.S. presidential election and got a slew of new polling this weekend. None of it very good for President Biden. Let's start with a new battleground poll from The New York Times. Among likely voters, Trump leads Biden in four of the six battleground states, Arizona, Georgia, Nevada, and Pennsylvania. They are tied in another, Michigan. And Biden leads in just one, Wisconsin, Note that Donald Trump lost all six of those states in 2020. His leads over Biden in the polls are now all by at least five percentage points, while Biden's advantage in Wisconsin, two points, was well within the polls' margin of error. And they are backed up by another poll, a CBS News YouGov national poll, also released Sunday, showed Trump leading Biden 51% to 48%, a reversal of Biden's 51% to 47% victory in the 2020 election. The poll results have already prompted tons of hand-wringing among prominent Democrats within half a day of their release. Some senior Dems, including former Obama senior advisor David Axelrod, tweeting over the weekend that it might be time for Biden to end his reelection bid and allow other Democrats to run. Swing state voters are dissatisfied with the current trajectory of the country. Only 23 percent think the country is headed in the right direction. And even among Biden supporters, they were split evenly between saying that the country is on the right track. Forty three percent say that and the wrong track which 42% agree. When half of your own supporters think that the country's on the wrong track, that typically means trouble, Jill. A majority of voters, 53%, said that Biden's policies, quote, had hurt them personally. Just 36% said that they'd been helped by Biden's policies. And only 36% of likely voters thought that Biden has the mental sharpness to be an effective president. 54% thought Trump is mentally sharp enough. Yeah, significant here in this polling, Jill, is Biden has lost advantage with many of the groups that brought him to victory in 2020. Remember, that was super close. When you look at the Electoral College, basically it was four states that put him over the top, added up about 100,000 vote difference. So he needs all those votes again. Can't stand to lose much, but he's lost traction with women, black voters, Latinos, young voters, still holds an advantage with all those groups, but not what he had in 2020. He's having a major problem with young voters. Among likely voters under the age of 30, Biden led Trump in the poll only 50 to 44. That is well short of the double-digit advantage that he had in 2020, and he's going to need to repair that if he has any hope of winning a year from now. Fully half of swing state voters, 50%, rated the economy poor, Only 21%, one out of five voters said it was excellent or good. Another 30% calling it fair. Trump leads, when you ask in all the categories, he leads on immigration. He leads on Israel. He leads on national security. He leads on the economy. And then there's age. Seven in 10, 70% of likely voters in those key states say that Biden's just too old to be effective. Only 28%, less than one in three voters think that Biden still uh, can manage this at his age. What's interesting is Trump is only three years younger than Biden, but voters see him pretty much a spring chicken by comparison. Only 39% of Republicans believe he's too old to be an effective president. 58% disagreed. You mentioned the mental sharpness, and you also mentioned those comments by David Axelrod that set off a whole back and forth among Democrats over the weekend, um, including some Biden people who are like, Axelrod, you know better than this. They're shooting within the tent, if you will. 
But what I found notable is you also have another former Obama White House comms director, Dan Pfeiffer. He's well known if you listen to Pod Save America. He wrote over the weekend that Democrats need to be taking this very, very seriously emphasis on two varies. He says the White House needs to begin to focus on what he calls the double haters. These are the people who hate both Trump and Biden. He says that the White House just has to convince those voters, the double haters, that, well, Trump is even worse you know, sort of compare on a curve here, grade on a curve, and tell voters about Biden's accomplishments. What was notable in the poll is that once you tell uh, voters, you know, what he's accomplished on the economy, infrastructure, uh, inflation, the gun bill from last year, etc., his numbers begin to improve. So that explains here that the White House has a bit of a communications issue. Either way, one year out, we're just 60 days from primaries. So uh, if Biden was to drop out, he needs to do it literally today or very soon because it would be a very quick turn for any Democrats looking to begin their run, build their name recognition, especially with the group that we think would be running if Biden was to step down, which again, it's not clear that he would do that. Mosh, at this point, even though it's a full year out, anybody who first got into the race would be playing catch up. Who are some of the names that are being discussed? So a couple wouldn't be a surprise, right? Kamala Harris, the vice president, who would, you know, be typical heir apparent, but given her lack of popularity, would certainly face competitors. Uh, Pete Buttigieg would want to get back in the game. Uh, he's young, still in his early 40s. Um, and then you have a few governors. One is Gavin Newsom of California. He's been itching to run. In fact, if he could pay someone to take out Biden, he probably would, <laughs> to be frank. Like, Gavin Newsom goes on Fox News during his own debates with DeSantis. People are like, is he running? I'm like, no, but you wouldn't be wrong if it felt like he's running. Like, he is ready. Like, it's if, the debate. If, it was the debate with DeSantis that got me. It was like, oh, why are you debating are you anybody? <laughs> why are you debating a presidential candidate on Fox News? Like, he is so itching to run for president. Like, if Biden announced he wasn't running, like, Gavin Newsom would announce on Twitter like within seconds of Biden dropping out. <laughs> All right, so you have Gavin Newsom in California. Uh, you have Gretchen Whitmer, the governor of Michigan. You also have Josh Shapiro, the governor from Pennsylvania. So there's a lot of young Democratic talent at the gubernatorial level that you'd be looking at in addition to a couple of those 2020 names. I mean, God knows, would Bernie Sanders get in again? Probably not. Liz Warren still probably would run as well. So some of the usual suspects from uh, the previous campaign, plus some of these governors would likely get in. But again, you know, Democrats are well known to sort of shoot inside the tent whenever there's bad numbers. I mean, I remember this back in 2008. People don't remember. But actually, after McCain announced Sarah Palin, he had a couple of weeks there where he had an incredible rise. He was beating Obama in the polls before the Katie Couric interviews, before the stock market collapse. And I remember having a briefing actually with David Axelrod and some of those Obama people who were like, don't worry, we'll be okay. But the Democrats were freaking out being like, Obama, you're screwing up this election in 08. So Democrats are known to like freak out over polls. And so this is a poll where they're freaking out. But they have reason to be worried here. You know, the majority of Democrats have been saying, we've been reporting it on the podcast, have been begging for a competition. And there is deep concern about Biden's age here. And, you know, will he make it through the election? And it feels, at least based on the polls right now, that people are like, even if you didn't like Trump after four years, that after a couple of years where you've sort of had a break from him, <laughs> some people are ready to bring him back, given the state of the world, given the state of everything. That said, caveat, and you hear this from Democrats, Trump has four criminal trials he's got to face next year, two federal and two state, uh, 91 criminal counts, potential years in prison. So there's some stuff that still works to the Dems' advantage, but uh, it'll be a very interesting couple of months to watch, especially if these polls continue to mount. How will Biden reply to this? Because he's already is not great at communication and 
with age, it's only going to get worse. You do have to also wonder, is this the window that RFK Jr. is looking for? What's interesting, he's an independent candidate. People might not remember with all the other news that's happening. He announced a couple of weeks ago, he's not a Democrat anymore running the Democratic primary. He's an independent. And a couple of polls have come out that show him getting between 15 to 20 percent and grabbing from both right now, grabbing more from Trump than Biden. But, you know, he could be right now. His numbers, if they would hold, is more like a, a Ross Perot 1990s scenario where Perot was polling between 15 to 20 percent. And by the way, Bill Clinton becomes president with 38 or 39 percent of the vote in 1992. Many thanks to Ross Perot taking a certain percentage of uh, voters from uh, President Bush, the father, at that moment. So um, I think there's, you know, we're at this interesting moment uh, in American history where you could see a legitimate, you know, some third party votes. And you're seeing it, by the way, with the progressives on the Democratic side. We'll discuss that a bit in this next story. But, you know, there's a lot of liberals out there, Arab Americans, Muslim Americans, progressives who are not happy right now at this moment with how Biden is approaching the Middle East. And so those left-wingers are saying, he doesn't deserve my vote anymore, even if it means, apparently, Donald Trump, who, by the way, disagrees with him on everything and is actually to the right of Biden on the Middle East. And they're considering people like Cornell West, uh, who's actually you know running as well as a progressive. So, Jill, we're a year out. In most <laughs> countries, the election wouldn't have started yet. In America, we're halfway through the election with a year to go. In America, we're like, Oh, my God, if you have not started yet, you are so far behind. What are you waiting for? It's too late. late. You you only have a year. Now to the Middle East. It has now been one month since the Hamas terror attack on October 7th and the subsequent Israeli counter assault on the terror group in Gaza. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken was back in Israel and the West Bank this weekend speaking to the Israelis and Palestinian leaders. On Saturday, he tried to assure Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas that the Biden administration was intensifying efforts to ease the plight of Gaza's civilians and insisting that Palestinians must have a main say in whatever comes next for the territory after the conflict. The Palestinian Authority in the West Bank is hoping to also be able to control Gaza again if Israel successfully unseats Hamas there. Blinken essentially saying that they would be managing the territory again for the first time in 16 years after a Hamas coup unseated them in 2007. Abbas said that the Palestinian Authority would only assume power in Gaza as part of a comprehensive political solution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. He also condemned Israel's bombardment of Gaza as a, quote, genocidal war and urged Blinken quote, to immediately stop them from committing such crimes. It comes as the U.S. tried to convince Israel on Friday to take more humanitarian pauses and allow more aid in, including fuel to Gaza. And to that end, the Israelis attempted to set up humanitarian corridors on Saturday and Sunday in Gaza to get more of the 300,000 Palestinians still in the main war zone in northern Gaza down to the south They were not very successful, the Israelis coming under attack from Hamas while setting up those windows and Palestinians complaining that they didn't feel safe moving, nor were there roads that they could still drive on to get there. As far as more sustained pauses, the Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu pushing back Friday against U.S. pressure, saying that there would be no temporary ceasefire 
until Hamas releases the roughly 240 foreign hostages that it is holding. Israeli's military announced that its forces had effectively split the Gaza Strip into two parts before an expected escalated assault on Hamas targets in the north. That is where most of the Hamas command and terrorists are located. So this all comes as the death toll continues to mount and is uh, creating a lot of uh, concern across, particularly across the Arab world, as they watch these numbers. Hamas right now claims that there's now more than 9,000 dead on the Palestinian side. Uh, it's unclear how many are civilians versus combatants. Those are Hamas figures which can't be independently verified. That said, you you know can clearly see in the pictures and video coming from there, the civilian death toll, the civilian injuries continue to mount. You're also hearing it from third-party aid groups as well. The Israeli death toll also going up. Uh, there were a number of military deaths over the weekend as they continue to get into Gaza City, as well as an Israeli civilian who was killed in the north by shelling from the Hezbollah terror group in Lebanon. Jill, we mentioned on the Friday podcast that we were watching this big speech from the Hezbollah leader, Hassan Nasrallah, on Friday. It turned out the speech was like a wah-wah. As you wrote on Instagram, in a speech that could have been an email. <laughs> yes. Um, I would say that having watched Nasrallah for 20 years, that uh, he was a bit restrained, uh, it appears. You know, the big concern has been Hezbollah getting involved, making this a regional war. And effectively what he did... <laughs> In, in, you know, shorter terms is he sent his thoughts and prayers to Hamas saying, you know, good luck with what you guys are doing down there. We're with you morally. And once in a while, we'll send a shell over the border. It has frustrated Hamas leaders who want a full regional assault on Israel. He what they want Israel to be distracted by Iran, by the Houthis, by Hezbollah, by Islamic Jihad, by the whole region. The region isn't getting involved. And in Lebanon, where Hezbollah is, there's a lot of pushback on them being like, do not get us into this war, Hezbollah. Hezbollah effectively operates both, both as a political party and an independent military terrorist entity within Lebanon. Uh, the last time they dragged Lebanon into war in 2006, it led to a thousand deaths in the country, a lot of damage, and the feeling from Lebanese saying, Hezbollah, do not do this to us again. The journalist Ishar Ali uh, noted after friend of the pod, Joe. friend of the pod, um, noted yeah. after listening to Hassan Nasrallah, he said, "I am not kidding when I say that Hezbollah leader Hassan Nasrallah's speech today was less inflammatory than some of those made on U.S. college campuses in the past few weeks." <laughs> It would be funny if it wasn't actually true. Uh, There's been some more pro-Hamas rhetoric on some college campuses than there was from Hassan Nasrallah on Friday. And people pushed back at him. So he was posting someone post back like that is not an appropriate thing to say, given the climate. And he's like, it's true. I mean, it's actually true when you listen to the verbiage at some of these protests. All right, with all that said, the Hamas leader, who's typically based in Qatar, Ismail Haniya, has been doing the rounds. He flew to Iran over the weekend to meet with the Ayatollah, uh, and the leadership there reportedly was updating them on the war front and probably begging them to do more to help Hamas. He'll reportedly be going to Lebanon, where he will likely be meeting with non-Gaza Hamas leadership there, as well as coordinating with some of the groups they've been talking to, Hezbollah, Islamic Jihad, who both have uh, major operations going in Lebanon. Um, In Israel, meanwhile, there's growing frustration with the Prime Minister, Netanyahu, who is already pretty unpopular due to a variety of domestic issues before the war. And so now he's facing a lot of pushback from the left in Israel for not doing more to get the hostages out, and then from the right for not being aggressive, as aggressive as he can be in Gaza, and being responsive to the humanitarian concerns. So just a general disappointment um, in him from all sides. 
and the fact that he let the worst tragedy in Israeli history happen on his watch, and he's still in charge here. He's also, Netanyahu is having his own issues within his cabinet, right-winger saying incendiary things. Uh, his heritage minister over the weekend, by the way, the heritage minister has no role in the war or anything national security, uh, said, why don't we nuke Gaza? Major issue. He was like, all right, dude, you're suspended. Please do not say things like that. We follow international rules and order. Still getting a lot of attention in the region. It plays into the worst fears. And then that minister was like, I totally meant it metaphorically. And so you have that happening there, Jill. So, you know, something to keep in mind for all of you when you're watching this conflict, think about these countries the same way we think about this country, because you guys will send me clips being like, what did this person mean when they said something crazy? And I was like, that is a cable news pundit in Israel. Do cable news pundits say crazy things? Like think about Tucker Carlson or Sean Hannity or whoever. So like all of these countries have their own versions of Marjorie Taylor Greene and various cable pundits and, and whatnot. So just keep that in mind when you see like various clips going viral um, that in many cases, some of these people have no relevance to actually uh, policy, et cetera. Um, Jill, I'll finish here. Tony Blinken, the Secretary of State, posted a photo of him over the weekend, by the way, from Reuters, just looking completely disheveled, <laughs> totally looked- like out of it, being like, <laughs> oh my God, I've spent a month trying to get like, you know, uh, something in line here. So he's he's been continuing his visits over the weekend. It reminded me of like a mom after they give birth, who's just like, uh, like hair frazzled, <laughs> hasn't yeah. slept. Like it's, he was the physical embodiment of, of what he must be feeling at this moment. Yeah. He's like, I'm trying to support Israel, but then I have to go to all the Arab countries to get yelled at. And then Israel will yell at me. And like, I can't win here. And like Biden has domestic political situ- problems. And like, I just, you know, he's trying his best. It's basically what every American Secretary of State has had to deal with in the Middle East, going back like 80 years now. Anyway, interestingly, we posted a video over the weekend from Turkey where a protest turned into a pro-Palestine riot, basically trying to take over the U.S. base in Incirlik. Uh, that's the base where we conduct major ISIS operations. Remember, Turkey is a NATO country. Um, and there was a major back and forth there. Lincoln headed to Turkey, among other folks. And by the way, the CIA director, Burns is also in Israel in Jordan the next couple of days. Uh, CIA upping its coordination with the Israelis, flying drones over Gaza to help uh, identify hostages. And that does come as the U.S. has been very vocal, sending aircraft carriers and submarines to the region. And we were promoting that over the weekend. And that, again, is, hey, Iran, do not get involved. Most really quickly, you mentioned Netanyahu facing a lot of opposition at home, which he was even before the war. Is there any chance that he doesn't last the duration of the war that he's ousted at some point or just forced to resign? I think right now Israelis are sort of in the kind of American post 9-11 mode where like we're all in it together, even though we hate some of these people. Like we're all, you know, the war cabinet, they he brought in some of the opposition, the people who they've been, you know, smack talking each other and running against each other for years. They're all right now working together. It's a small country. So despite the hatred and the protests and the issues, etc., it would take quite a move for them to try to try to hold an election, which like I can't even imagine, but you know, to oust the prime minister, unless there was some major error in the war or some major fiasco, you, you could see that scenario. But right now it does not look like it would happen short term. Okay. We also want to mention a major protest in Washington over the weekend. It's estimated about a hundred thousand people there pushing for a ceasefire. 
and an end to U.S. aid for Israel in the war. Protesters made it to the White House where some climbed the fence. Um, In some cases, they almost had physical altercations with Secret Service. They painted part of the White House fence red to symbolize blood. As we spoke about Biden and his political issues, it does appear he is facing some major issues from the left wing of his own party. Yup, a number of them at the protest interviewed over the weekend saying, I voted for the guy in 2020. I can't vote for him here. Uh, Again, the alternate is Trump in this scenario. So it'll be interesting to see whether it does manifest itself at the ballot box or or how it does. Uh, By the way, Jill, a lot of terminology is being thrown around when it comes to war crimes, the term genocide, etc. We tried to set the record straight on all that stuff um, over on the Instagram account over the weekend. Long story short, I thought Ian Bremer actually summarized this well, another friend of the pod who's been on a couple times. He wrote the following, Hamas supports genocide of Israelis, but doesn't have the capacity. Israel has the capacity to commit genocide, but not the intention. So a lot of words are thrown about here. We dove into it over on the Mo News Premium Instagram account, and that includes an interview with war crimes tribunal person, someone who helped create the International Criminal Court, etc. So we go through how they define war crimes, and again, why some of the oversimplification you're hearing on on online on social media is not necessarily jive with the law. You can follow Mo News Premium by signing up over at mo.news/premium. All right, we have plenty of news coming up, but first a word from a couple of our sponsors. We'll start with Bowl and Branch Sheets. The holidays are almost here and everyone's in a gifting mode, but most people are forgetting one very special thing, treating themselves this season. So this year... Treat yourself. (laughs) You deserve it. (laughs) This year, give yourself a better night's sleep in the softest, most luxurious sheets from Bowl and Branch. We first got Bowl and Branch sheets in my house a few months ago. They are so soft and breathable. And this isn't just a line in an ad. They genuinely get softer with every wash. So we went with the color white. So did we. <laughs> Same Z. They look fresh and bright. They definitely brighten up our bedroom. So this holiday season, again, give yourself or a loved one the gift of a better night's sleep. Remember, Bowl and Branch products are made differently from the rarest 100% organic cotton on earth, and they do not have toxins and synthetic pesticides and harsh chemicals um, at any step of their making. So they are good for everyone, especially people with sensitive skin. Best of all, Bowl and Branch gives you a 30-night worry-free guarantee. You get free shipping as well and returns on all orders. And they have a signature gift box. So their sheets, their signature sheets will come wrapped and ready in a beautiful holiday box, which will make the holiday season even more special. So upgrade your sleep with 25% off your first order at Bowl & Branch. It is their best offer of the entire year. Just head to bowlandbranch.com. Use the promo code MONEWS. That is bowlandbranch, B-O-L-L-A-N-D, branch.com. The promo code MONEWS, M-O-N-E-W-S. This is a limited time offer and some exclusions apply. So see their site for details. Yeah, and we always put the links uh, to all of our promos in the show notes. You can check that out in your podcast app. I just want to mention, by the way, if you don't know what the show note is, I feel like we say that all the time. The show note is just when you go to listen to this podcast, scroll down a little bit. We write some text about what stories we're covering and also the links to some stories that we mentioned. That's what we mean by show notes. I feel like we say it. I'm not sure if everyone knows what we mean. Thanks for clarifying, Joe. You're welcome. Before we get back to the news, we have one more partner to talk about today. If you're a longtime listener, you know that 
Uh, I've been drinking AG1 for about a year now. When I started drinking AG1 daily, I could feel a real difference in my energy level. And especially now that I'm a new dad, I can use all that I can get. That's because AG1 is a foundational nutritional supplement that supports your body's universal needs, gut health, stress management, immune support. Um, AG1 is a simple scoop of powder in the morning with a glass of water. It's simple, it's easy, and it helps you get all your nutrients. I've been hearing from some of you who are like, you got me, finally, I'm gonna try AG1. I got a couple messages recently about that. And that applies to some friends and family as well who are trying it. So once you take AG1 in the morning, you feel like you're covered for the day. And so if you really wanna take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. You can try AG1 right now with a special Mo News discount and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs, go over to drinkag1.com slash Mo News. That is drinkag1.com slash Mo News right now for the special deal and to take ownership of your health. All right, time for the speed read from the Associated Press. Former President Trump set to testify today at his New York civil fraud trial taking the stand in a deeply personal matter that is central to his image as a successful businessman and threatens to cost him control of marquee properties like Trump Tower. His highly anticipated testimony in the trial of New York Attorney General Letitia James's lawsuit follows that of his eldest sons, Eric and Don Jr. They testified last week. His oldest daughter, Ivanka, she said to testify on Wednesday Trump has attended seven days of the New York trial, quietly studying witnesses from the defense table, while also lashing out at the case, the judge and state lawyers in front of TV cameras in the hallway. He has called the case a sham, a scam and a continuation of the single greatest witch hunt of all time. James alleges that the statements inflated Trump's net worth by billions of dollars, making him appear to lenders as a more worthy credit risk and allowing him to obtain better interest and insurance rates. Trump has denied wrongdoing. Eric and Donald Jr. testified that they relied on an outside accounting firm and the Trump organization's finance team to prepare the statements and that they assumed that those statements were correct. This will be interesting to watch here. Remember, this is a civil case, not a criminal case, but it has ramifications, like you said, in terms of $250 million fine, the ability to do any future business in New York State. Uh, the former president testified in a deposition back in the spring that he never felt his financial statements, quote, would be taken very seriously, and the disclaimer on them warned people doing business with him to do their homework. Uh, so that's part of what we expect his argument to be here. The trial hinges in part on how much he and other Trump organization executives, including his kids, were involved in valuing his properties and calculating his wealth for the final statements that were then given to banks, insurers, etc. So they've been trying to point the finger at others. Tish James is trying to point the finger at him. Now, this won't be the first time he's testified. Uh, he has testified, according to the AP, in at least eight trials over the past 40 years or so, in addition to dozens of depositions. Uh, the AP did an analysis here, you know, saying, like, what should we expect? And it's kind of what you expect, a mix of what they say, ego, charm, defensiveness, aggressiveness, sharp language, deflection, combative, boastfulness, being vague, hedging, and being dismissive. So there you have it, folks. That's your preview of Trump's testimony. Keep in mind, uh, we are expected to see some of this on camera. So Stay tuned to the uh, Mo News Insta page today for our highlights. From NBC News, U.S. and European officials have begun quietly talking to the Ukrainian government 
about what possible peace negotiations with Russia might entail to end the war. The conversations have included very broad outlines of what Ukraine might need to give up to reach a deal, according to officials. Some of the talks took place last month during a meeting of representatives from more than 50 countries supporting Ukraine, including NATO members. The discussions are an acknowledgement of the dynamics militarily on the ground in Ukraine and politically in the U.S. and Europe. They began amid concerns among U.S. and European officials that the war has reached a stalemate and about the ability to continue providing aid to Ukraine. Biden administration officials are also worried that Ukraine is running out of forces while Russia seemingly has an endless supply. Ukraine is also struggling with recruiting and has recently seen public protests about some of President Zelensky's open-ended conscription requirements. Keep in mind here, the war is almost 21 months old. February will mark two years of the war. Uh, It comes, by the way, Zelensky says, we're not in a stalemate. Uh, We are gaining traction here. Just stay the course, everybody. But if you look at independent analyses of what the counteroffensive has gotten them so far over the course of almost six months now, Jill, they're gaining about a football field every day in an area the size of Maryland that Russia has invaded and occupied. So it's going to be a while. And by the way, you know, it's not a football game, right? This is war. So people are dying. Things are getting blown up. Um, It's costing a lot of money. They're literally running out of bullets over and over again. And the U.S. has to keep sending them more and more and more and more. And the concern here is we have lost our patience here uh, with the battle for Ukraine. You see that playing out in Congress right now. And uh, Zelensky keeps saying, nope, time has passed. People are tired, but this is not a stalemate. Stay the course here. By the way, I was also struck over the weekend. Zelensky was on Meet the Press over on NBC, and uh, he was asked about Trump's comments. Trump says if he becomes president again, he'll end the war in 24 hours. Zelensky was asked about that. And he said, I would like to invite former President Trump to Ukraine, and I will explain to him in 24 minutes why the 24-hour scenario is not realistic. Trump claims he could just make this whole thing done, get it all done, and, uh, and it would be, quote, very easy. Zelensky's assuming that that's because Trump is willing to give up sections of Ukraine to Russia, and uh, that's not something he is apt to do. But, Jill, based on some of this reporting, we're seeing it sounds like the world saying, you know, we hate to say this, Zelensky, but you might have to give some of your country to Putin to end this. And this is something, Jill, we've talked about since the war began. It's incredible to think about, Moshe, considering that when the war first started, we spoke to military experts who pretty much said, you know, universally, within four or five days, Russia will have marched to Kiev and taken over the country. Um, And so Ukraine, the fact that they have managed to hold off off Russia as long as they have, um, is incredible. And it's it's hard because the longer it goes and the more lives that are lost on, on both sides, the harder it is to reach the more some type entrenched. Of, yeah. And and by the way, that's the same thing in the Middle East as well. It's like the more people that are killed, the harder it is to make peace. Yeah, the compromise. I mean, and that's the thing is like the West has to explain to Zelensky is like, well, we all assumed you're going to lose your entire country. So the fact that you still have like 90% of the country call that a win. And he's like, whoa, what are you talking about? Like, stand by me, stand by me. And you're seeing this and, you know, he's struggling and it sounds like he's struggling domestically as well. So we'll keep tabs on this. All right. A quick food recall note from Reuters. Tyson Foods is recalling nearly 30,000 pounds of breaded chicken, fun nuggets, after consumers complained of finding metal pieces in the dinosaur-shaped patties. 
The nuggets are sold in 29-ounce bags. They were produced on September 5th by the Berryville, Arkansas Company. Tyson informed the U.S. Department of Agriculture's Food Safety and Inspection Service and said that it recalled the nuggets voluntarily out of an abundance of caution. USDA said that there had been only one report of a minor oral injury associated with consumption of the product. Mosh, as soon as we finish this podcast, I'm running down to my kitchen because I think these are actually in my freezer right now. Well, Jill, here's a piece of advice when you go over there. The nuggets subject to recall carry the number P7211, P7211 on the back of the package. They were shipped to Alabama, California, Illinois, Kentucky, Michigan, Ohio, uh, a number of states. The USDA urges consumers with the nuggets in their freezers to throw them out or return them to the place of purchase. So, Jill, one thing I did recently, and I would suggest anyone in the audience who, you know, frequents the grocery store, which I imagine is most of you, you can sign up over on the USDA website for uh, recall notices in categories of food that you buy. And you'll hear about this stuff first, because typically then, you know, you have to wait for a media property to tell you about it. And we don't have the capacity. I mean, we could start a separate podcast just for recalls. I mean, that's how many recalls happen. So we try to alert you to some notable ones. But you can go over to the USDA uh, and FDA, by the way, they both have recall email uh, signups that you can sign up for. All right. From Bloomberg, Amazon founder and the world's third richest man in the world, Jeff Bezos, is about to turn 60 and move where else? Florida. The founder has spent nearly three decades calling Seattle home, and now he's returning to his childhood city of Miami to be closer to his parents, he says. Yes. <laughs> okay, why now? Although some speculate the billionaire and his sizable fleet of yachts has been lured to Florida by its attractive tax environment, it does seem more personal than that. Here is how Bezos put it in an Instagram post on Thursday. He writes, My parents have always been my biggest supporters. They recently moved back to Miami, the place where we lived when I was younger. I want to be close to my parents, and Lauren and I love Miami. Also, Blue Origins Operations, that is his space travel company, are increasingly shifting to Cape Canaveral. For all of that, I am planning to return to Miami, leaving the Pacific Northwest. Though, at the same time, many are speculating that it also has to do with the fact that Florida does not have a state income tax. <laughs> no, no. Jeff Bezos just wants to be close to his folks, Jill. I'm his- not hating on him for that. I, I'm not <laughs> as skeptical as you are at this moment. Well, let me let me give you a couple of factoids and you let me know how you feel at the end. <laughs> so he's already purchased two homes in an area called Indian Creek, uh, Florida. It's a uh, private island in Biscayne Bay known as Billionaire Bunker. Um, now, Washington State, where Bezos founded Amazon back in 94, recently approved a 7% capital gains tax. And that targets all investment profits over 250 grand. That could have a big impact on Bezos. He's already sold down billions in Amazon stock over the years. He still owns 990 million shares of Amazon. At today's stock price, that's about $137 billion worth of stock. Jill, if you put a 7% capital gains tax on that, that's about $10 billion in taxes. So just throwing that out there. At the same time, here's another fun fact for you, Jill. In the time we read this story, Jeff Bezos just became $120,000 richer just in these two and a half minutes, um, just to put some perspective there. So listen, it might be his parents, it might be no property taxes and no capital gains tax, extra capital gains tax in Florida, or it might just be this, Jill, he's turning 60 in January, and he's trying to retire early, which I imagine at his wealth, he can probably do. That's what you do for Florida, right? 
Del Boca Vista. Yeah, and and Publix. He probably just wants to go <laughs> be near a Publix. All right, from NPR, Ethiopian Tamarat Tola won the men's race in the New York City Marathon, breaking the all-time record for the course. The runner finished the 26.2-mile race through the five boroughs in two hours, four minutes, and 58 seconds on Sunday, topping the previous mark of two hours, five minutes, and six seconds that was set in 2011. Tola won the bronze medal in the 10,000 meters race at the 2016 Rio Olympics. In second place was Kenyan Albert Quirier. Uh, He had won the marathon back in 2021, and he was almost two minutes behind Tamarat. Meanwhile, on the women's side, a Kenyan took the crown with an Ethiopian runner finishing second. Helen Obiri of Kenya surged ahead of the competition in the uphill final stretch to win that women's title. She placed first with a time of two hours, 27 minutes and 23 seconds. Outrunning Ethiopian Latessenbet Gaidi by six seconds. Six seconds. Oh my gosh. Can you imagine running 26.2 miles and losing by six seconds there? Jill, so it's interesting. So on the men's side, you had an Ethiopian win, Kenyan second. On the women's side, you had a Kenyan win, Ethiopian second. Um, Obiri, by the way, the female winner, won the Boston Marathon back in April. So she is the first to win both the Boston and New York marathons in the same year in 34 years. Um, the weather was very good. And so while you did have a men's new record in terms of speed, the women's record still stands. The Oberi, the winner this year, is still five minutes behind the uh, record for women. Americans uh, did finish in the top 10 on both sides. You had Americans Callan Taylor and Molly Huddle finish in eighth and ninth place on the women's side. Then on the men's side, you had Futsum Zina Selassie, who was the top American finisher on the men's side. He finished in 10th place. Jill, how close were you to that two-hour and uh, twenty-seven-minute uh, finish? Um, let's just say, <laughs> take that, double it, got it, and add some more minutes. Right. I don't think people understand how insane it is to finish a twenty-six-mile <laughs> run in like just over two hours. It's remarkable. All right, now time for on this day in history on this November sixth, on this day in eighteen sixty. Abraham Lincoln is elected the 16th president of the United States. It's a deeply divided country. He becomes the first Republican. It's a new party at the time uh, to become president. Uh, Lincoln actually only won 40% of the popular vote as a multi-candidate race. Back then, we used to inaugurate our presidents in March, elect them in November, and they wouldn't be inaugurated till March. Uh, By then, the country was ripping apart. Uh, Just five weeks after he becomes inaugurated, the Civil War begins. In other election news on this day in 1984, Ronald Reagan was re-elected president. I only bring this up because it's a remarkable achievement. He got 525 electoral votes. No one has ever equaled that. He won 49 out of the 50 states Reagan did in 84. Democrat Walter Mondale only won one state, Minnesota. In less Democratic news on this day in 1917, the second phase of the Russian Revolution began with the Bolsheviks seizing power, uh, led by Vladimir Lenin. Just months later, the Romanovs, the royal family, were executed by them. Uh, Just a couple years later, the Russian Civil War would end with the establishment of the Soviet Union. On this day in TV history, Meet the Press makes its TV debut. It is the longest-running TV news show. Jill, just a year later, I know this just because I ran the CBS Evening News in 1948, is when the CBS Evening News would launch um, as a 15-minute newscast. They would eventually extend it to 30 minutes, and you've had all the other half-hour newscasts. But Meet the Press holds the crown as the longest-running news show. If it's Sunday. It's Meet the Press. One of the greatest theme songs, by the way, when you hear the John Williams soundtrack. 
All right. On this day in pop culture news, The Waterboy, starring Adam Sandler, premiered in theaters 25 years ago today. Jill, just a reminder that in a matter of four years, Adam Sandler gave us Billy Madison, Happy Gilmore, Waterboy, Wedding Singer, and Big Daddy, 95 to 99, a prolific, I mean, can you name a more prolific run in cinematic history than the um, output there by uh, one Adam Sandler? And incredibly, he's still going. I mean, it, it's in a different way. He's not kind of pumping out these classics anymore, but his acting right, he's has... Got the, in, the bar mitzvah movie or whatever? Yeah, yeah. he has that. You're so not invited to my bar mitzvah. But he's made a home at, at Netflix. He's also taken some more serious roles. Yeah. So I would say he's still doing really well. All right. So props to Adam Sandler. But I just want to know, in between 1995 and 1999, Billy Madison, Happy Gilmore, Waterboy, Wedding Singer, Big Daddy, Jill, the number of days of my life I watched those (laughs) on VHS and DVD on repeat in college and quoted it. I won't get back. All right. On this day in 2001, Britney Spears released her third album, Britney. That album would give us I'm a Slave for You and I'm Not a Girl, Not Yet a Woman. I'm not a girl. Very literal. (laughs) (laughs) that was the phase she was in at this juncture in 22 years ago jill will end here some of you might remember this tv theme the following takes place between midnight and 1 a.m on the day of the california presidential primary events occur in real time Jill, on this day, 22 years ago, 24 premiered. Some of you might remember the show on Fox. Um, what was incredible is they came up with the show before 9-11, you know, where they were tracking this guy, Jack Bauer, played by Kiefer Sutherland, um, you know, trying to take down terrorists. And of course, they were developing the show. They shot the show. And then of course, 9-11 happened. So, you know, I think 24 for many people really resonated in those early 2000s. One of my favorite shows, I loved Jack Bauer, um, but it was also just one of the first shows that was in that real time. You know, it, it took place over 24 hours. Right. If you saw Hijack, that series on Apple with Idris Elba, it's that same type of thing where each hour is literally supposed to be an hour. Jill, that I think was the first season DVD set I got, like when you had to binge on a DVD. (laughs) And I remember one of my buddies in college, like I had a final coming up and he like took the DVDs away from me because he's like, you haven't studied yet. (laughs) And I was like, I'm so addicted. I don't know what's going to happen at eight o'clock or nine o'clock or 10 o'clock because they, you know, that's the increments of 24. Anyway, I digress here. But for those who know, you know. And with that, you're going to have to wait another 24 hours for another Mo News podcast. Thank you for listening to the Mo News podcast. If you like what you hear, share this with your friends. It will help us grow. Follow us and subscribe so you don't miss an episode and review us in the App Store. Part of that theme, by the way, um, they have Kiefer Sutherland saying, uh, I'm Jack Bauer, and this is the longest day of my life. (laughs) And it might be the longest day of your life as you wait for another Mo News podcast. All right. Bye, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Mo News Podcast.